Turn to your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be going through verses 8 through 11 today. But for context, I'm going to start at the beginning and read through. Let me do this. I'm just going to read through the whole chapter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion discerning to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I have received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith that love that are in Jesus Christ. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please bow your head with me. Let's pray and ask for help. Heavenly Father, please help me rightly divide your word to be a worker unashamed. To understand what it means to be a teacher that rightly understands your law and expresses it in its true form. How it is uh, in accordance with sound doctrine and the gospel. That they are not too mutually exclusive, but they are one together. There is a unity that there exists that we are missing greatly, I believe, in our society today. One that divorces itself from its understanding uh, of the law of being foundational to the gospel. Not separate, not distinct. Not merely limited to a covenant, but expressed as an example of your character. That we may better understand you and know you. Understand your holiness, your righteousness, your goodness. As image bearers, what it means to reflect that and what and what that looks like when we fail to do so. Lord, I pray that with Paul, as he was once acknowledged a former blasphemer and a persecutor of your body, that he acknowledged the grace that was given to him. And he is the same man who understands what it means to be in Christ as one who faithfully teaches the law. One who's not caught up in discussing vain word studies, myths and genealogies, but understands the law rightly as it should point us as the greatest teacher to Christ. I pray for our time together. In Jesus' name. 
So, as you might have gathered in my prayer, this is going to be a controversial sermon. Shocker for those who know me very well. I am always interested in dealing with controversies because I believe that is actually the role of a pastor. A pastor is there to equip the church for the work of ministry. And in our work of ministry today, one of the greatest misses is evangelism. One of the greatest misses is faithfully reaching the unbelievers, faithfully reaching sinners, and demonstrating very clearly to them what the gospel, what the good news actually is. We miss it. We miss it greatly. There's a huge debate uh, among the Christian community in terms of Christian ethics. For any of you who spent any sort of time with me, you know that this is a, a, a very deep concern of my own personal studies. But you ask you know, five Christians, I think the reason why, is all, you'll we'll ask five Christians what, what a Christian ethic is, right? What is the Christian ethic? And I say the, right? Definite article. The Christian ethic. And you'll get six responses, maybe ten. And then they'll all start arguing with each other on what that should look like. And when you bring up things like the law, immediately, typically, the response is, come on, man, we're not under the law anymore, right? We're Christians. Right, I agree. However, the, the, the challenge here today is, does the law have a role? Both the Westminster and the uh, London Baptist Confession, who were in happy agreement 97% of the time with one another, say this about the law, that there is something about the law that is in happy harmony with the gospel. That it is there as a pedagogical teacher. That it is there as a guide and instructor. That it's not something that, as Jonathan preached on last week, merely brings a curse. And so last week, Jonathan, and I encourage you, I think he wants to continue going through Psalm 119, uh, to consider the law's relationship in terms of uh, what it means to us in our sanctification. What it means as a guide and an instructor in our sanctification. It's not something to be shunned. It's not something to be run away from, but it's something to be reveled in and appreciated like David did when he said, oh, how I love your law in Psalm 119 later. How is it a light to my feet? How in its light I see your light. How I'm able to properly interpret how life should look, how then I should live. What I want to do though today is take that very understanding, the foundation, the groundwork that Jonathan laid in Psalm 119 into what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. He's saying something about the law here as it relates to us and our understanding of the gospel. He's saying something about the law as it relates to us in terms of our understanding of sound doctrine. He's saying something about the law as it relates to our advancement of the gospel. And I hope to do a good job of explaining that today. But what I want to do is lay the groundwork for you real quick. Here's, here's some of the debates. Some would say that the law is entirely abolished in Christ. It's done away with. Okay. Uh, there are some who say, well, there's some parts of the law that we would uphold and other parts not so much. So there's a continuity, discontinuity argument. Some would say that, that uh, there is no place at all for the law in the life of the Christian. And then there are some that would say, yes, it does. Like Jonathan taught on last week, there is a place for the law in the life of the Christian. But then the, then the immediate question followed up with is to what extent? There are questions that we have debated then not only just in the life of the Christian, what about family life? Does the law have something to say about family life? Let me take it one step further. Does the law have something to say about church life? and its governance. Let me take it one step further. Does the law have something to say 
about civic governance and the expectations that God has over it. And for some weird, strange reason, the majority, I guarantee people in this room today would go, oh yeah, Jeremy, for the individual, absolutely. In some cases, right? Maybe not so much. Um, Are we supposed to abide by all 613 laws? Are we supposed to do sacrifices still? Supposed to wear special clothing? Most would say, no, no, that that's been fulfilled in Christ. That's what that means. That its end was found in Christ. That that distinction of a particular people group was that was to set them apart, distinct, has been now fulfilled in Christ. We no longer offer sacrifices, as the author of Hebrews says. Christ is the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, capable of cleansing our conscience before God. So we don't offer sacrifices anymore. What? Well, then what? What are we supposed to do, Jeremy? Okay, well, let me ask: Is it okay to be a, uh, sexually immoral? No. Is that okay? No. Well, of course, the New Testament teaches about that. We shouldn't be doing that. Cool. Is uh, let me. No, never mind. I'll, I'll hold back that one. I'll ask you this later. I'll put this challenge out there later. There are other things that are brought up in that same um, context in Leviticus, where that's drawn from, uh, that talks about our relationships with animals. Better put, better framed up. I'll let you explain that later to your children. But our relationships to our fellow family members. How that should look. Our relationships with one another in marriage. Our relationships with the same sex and of the opposite sex. That sexual immorality is all incorporated in one context. Paul picks up that same point in Romans chapter 1. Now, if we say, okay, to what extent is it okay or not okay to live in that sort of uh, lifestyle, to be sexually immoral? Is that okay? Most would say no. Because the New Testament picks up on it. So the question I want to challenge today is to think about it. Well, the law, Paul is drawing directly from the law as it relates to sexual immorality, specifically here in this text. He picks up directly from it. There are some things that are mentioned in the New Testament and other things that aren't, like our relationship with animals and fellow family members and so on. Does that mean that just because it's not mentioned in the New Testament that it doesn't still stand? as it was mentioned in the Old. Does God have a standard that changes? Is that somehow changed? That is something that we have to wrestle with as fellow Christians. Now that's just one example of the individual life. The family life is also governed and instructed by the law. Matter of fact, Paul brings this up, doesn't he? In Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6. He talks about the, our relationship with our wives. Jonathan's gone to great extent over the last few months of, of what it looks like to be uh, a biblical, uh, what a, bar- a biblical marriage looks like. But then he brings up this thing about children. You guys notice this uh, right there at the end of uh, the beginning of Ephesians six. What does God? What does? Uh, excuse me. What does Paul say? You guys remember In Ephesians six. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise. Whoa, Paul, we're in the new covenant. Paul, what are you talking about? Why are you quoting commandments? He's quoting directly from Leviticus. He's actually quoting from Exodus um, as well. Directly from the laws that was given to Moses, there's a commandment to honor your mother and father. Okay, And that's a commandment that comes with a promise that what? It would go well with you and that you might live long in the land. Fathers, don't provoke your children in anger. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The question I ask today is that discipline and instruction of the Lord as it relates to families Correlated to the law. Yes, it is. 
Paul sees no problem quoting directly from the law, even encouraging this honoring of one's mother and father coming along with a blessing as a result. He doesn't correlate it with curses. I think Jonathan did a great job last week explaining that. There's a blessing that comes with honoring one's mother and father. And the, and the, the uh, command to the mother and father is to, we are to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In the same way that Paul instructed Israel to raise them up as they got up, they walked by the way as they lied down. That they were to express who God was and what God had done for them and they were to constantly remember and be reminded of it throughout their entire, the entirety of their lives. The law was to ever be before them. This is why they actually created things like phylacteries, right? These headdresses where it had the law, you know, and the law would ever be before them. It would be on, set as frontlets between their eyes, right? The law was not perceived as something that was bad, which is really interesting to me. It's very interesting that the, you know, um, that we as Christians would look at it as it only brings curses. That it's not something that adds no benefit to our life, and it's something that we are no longer under. And I hope to dispel that today. Um, Christ has a law. Paul talks about it. There is a law of Christ. Question, who revealed the law to Moses? God. Who's the second person of the triune Godhead? Jesus Christ. The voice of God was probably very well the second person of the triune Godhead revealing His holy character to Moses and what was required of the people of Israel, which is in a full extension, I would argue, based on the text we're about to read today and go through to us. There's no different today. Yes, it had covenantal arrangements surrounding it, but I believe those covenantal arrangements had how we respond to the result of the law and not necessarily the law in and of itself. Let me repeat that. The covenantal arrangement to Moses had to do with how we respond to the requirements of the law. And there were some of those covenantal arrangements that related directly to the people being a distinct people. There were some of those covenantal arrangements that dealt with uh, the order of the priesthood. There were some covenantal arrangements that dealt with the sacrifice. It was how we respond to God as a result of what the law brought. God reveals His holy character to us, and what happens? We have to have some arrangements now. A particular people need to be set apart. Why? Because God's holy presence was among them. We're studying that right now in Sunday school. The result, God's holy presence being among them, there is a particular order that would be required of you. Something that you need to understand about yourself and about God. And that revelation would come through the Ten Commandments. Here is how you should acknowledge God. You're not to make false gods up. You're not to take God's name in vain. You can't worship any other gods. He is the Lord God alone. Mothers and fathers... You need to teach your children in the fear and admonition of me and kids. You need to obey your parents. And this is what that obedience looks like. You can't murder people. You can't lie. You can't steal. You can't commit adultery. You can't be perverted. And you can't covet things to the extent that you would do all the above. That's how life ought to be ordered in Israel. And as a part of the Mosaic Covenant, I'm going to set you apart as a particular people. That you would be a blessing to the nations. They would look in and see my law and go, wow, how amazing is that? What nation is governed like this? What nation has a God like this? That is how people were to look at the law. And then what happens when we fail and when we stumble in this system? We're dwelling in the presence of a holy God. You have a sacrificial system and a priesthood to help order that. They will be the guides 
they will be a mediator between God and man. We need a mediator. Why? Because we can't stand in the holy presence of God. Anybody knows about the Day of Atonement where a sacrifice was offered both for the sins of the high priest and for the sins of Israel? What happened? They tied a rope around his waist when he entered into the presence, the most holy of holies, the presence of, of God. And why did they tie a, a rope around his waist? Because he could die in the presence of the living God for not faithfully confessing either his own sins or the sins of Israel. For not having a pure heart and walking in faith. What I mean by pure heart walking in faith is that he came in with a, with a clear conscience before the living God, having offered up a sacrifice and presenting it before him. God would kill him, and they would have to drag him out by the rope. This is a problem for us, isn't it, sinners? For those sinners out there who are not Christians, this is a problem for you just as much as it was for the high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies without a clear conscience before the living God in faith, knowing that this sacrifice is, was a shadow and a type of what ultimately Christ would accomplish on our behalf. Now let me take it one step further. Because that was a shadow and a type, like the author of Hebrews brings up, because it was a shadow and a type, it represented a greater, a greater, right? The archetype. Who is that? Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews says. He is the great high priest. He's the one that enters into the Holy Holies, the very presence of the Father. He is the one who mediates on our behalf. And He offered up for us a sacrifice once and for all, perfect for all eternity. And He continues to be a mediator for us. We can enter in boldly through the veil of His flesh, by grace, through faith, into the holy presence of the living God as a result of His work. Meaning, that office still stands, even though it's now the priesthood is what? Under the order of Melchizedek, a king who had no beginning and end. I would say Christophany, for those who want to debate that. A new priesthood, a new sacrifice is still present. We have a faithful mediator who mediates on our behalf. And through the veil of his flesh, we can enter in to the Holy of Holies. Meaning, the law still stands. Why? Because God's holy character still stands. God's holy character hasn't changed. And I believe the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, or the Ten Words, is the representative of God's holy character. Now let's, let's go through that. Let me start this. We have to remember that Jesus Christ stated very clearly about Himself what His ministry was. In Luke 4.43, He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I was sent for this purpose. So there is a good news factor to the gospel. The gospel must be conveyed to people. We must proclaim it. Paul says, how will they know unless they hear it, right? As ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an obligation and responsibility to declare that. I am an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, I represent a king. Oftentimes, we, we, we overemphasize, I believe, in our desire to run away from the law. We overemphasize the Savior and not the Lord. I think it's really important. just heard that recently. I think it was uh, uh, Sandlin, Dr. Sandlin that said that. We have a tendency, especially in America, to overemphasize Savior and not Lord. It should be both. He is both Lord and Savior. Why do I bring that up? Let's think about this real quick. What, what was proclaimed about Jesus Christ in bringing the kingdom? Some people here today might think the kingdom doesn't, it doesn't exist yet and that Jesus is still a king in exile. Even though 
Stephen was stoned to death for acknowledging the fact that he was seated at the right hand of the Father in power. Even though in the Great Commission, Jesus acknowledges that all authority has been given to him in heaven and earth, both in heaven and on earth. That's all his. Even though he ascended and said himself, I will be seated at the right hand of the Father. He said that he would be there. He spent the majority of his time prior to his ascension teaching the disciples in Acts chapter 1 about the kingdom. The Jews even asked at the time, is the tense of David being restored right now? The answer is emphatically, yes. Yes. But not just here in Israel. It's going from Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth because Jesus has all authority. He is the king, capital K, of lowercase kings. He is the capital L, Lord, of lowercase lords. He has conquered all of the enemies and put them into open shame by virtue of what he did on the cross. That's really interesting, right? He put all of his enemies, principalities and powers, forces of darkness, rulers of this day and age, to open shame by what he accomplished on the cross. His kingdom came in a different way. Not by what? Conquering ruler uh, you know, in, in an earthly, worldly way. He conquered everything on the cross and put them into open shame. And he rose again from the dead because the power of death could not hold him. And what does Paul acknowledge in Acts chapter 17? He says very clearly that it is by vindication of the resurrection that he has been appointed to judge all men. He is now the judge over all creation. The ruler over all creation. And he's seated in the heavenlies, ruling and governing his created order. All is his. And all are subject to him. What does it say later? Every knee and ultimately one day will bow, even though maybe they decide not to today. Every knee will bow and confess what? That Jesus Christ is what? Savior? That he is Lord. He is king. So, think of it this way. You have a conqueror, a great emperor, a great king, a capital king over lowercase kings. It means that other kings still exist. You have a great Lord overall, even though lowercase lords, rulers of this day and age still exist. Now, the euangelion where we get this idea of uh, evangelism from, or evangelical, were messengers of kings, of conquering kings. Empires would overthrow other empires and they would send out messengers. These messengers would go out and tell lowercase kings of the uppercase king's empire. They would tell these lowercase kings and these lowercase lords, you owe us tribute. You're king, even though you're a king. You're a lowercase king. You owe tribute to the uppercase king. Pay taxes. Acknowledge the fact that you're a part of his empire or be destroyed. You're welcome. Great news. You're in a new kingdom. You're in a new empire. This is what the Evangelion did, particularly in Rome is where we get that concept from. When the Roman Empire emperor would conquer a new kingdom, when they would expand their empire, they would send the Evangelion out and proclaim the good news of Caesar and his lordship. The Son of God has conquered your kingdom, Caesar. And he is now your ruler. Owe tribute to him. Pay tribute to him. And unless you do, you will perish. Most of the time, what they would do is they wouldn't have a scorched earth policy. They would overthrow this kingdom and still keep it intact and even allow what they call vassal rulers, in some cases, replacing the former king and putting in a new one that would be have an allegiance to Rome. 
and they would still rule, and they would leave, they allow all their customs. And in the case, Israel is a good example. Herod was a king, even though he was really appointed by Rome. And many of their procurators and rulers and other governors were appointed by Rome, right? They were all appointed by Rome. Their king was uh, basically a vassal king of Caesar. So they're a great example of this. They ruled on behalf of Caesar. Ultimately, they gave their allegiance and paid homage to Caesar. And what we're saying is, there's a new king. This is why Christians, just, just so everybody, if you're unaware, this is why Christians got in a lot of trouble in the Roman Empire. They came in and said, uh, Caesar is a lowercase king. Caesar is a lower, lower a case L, Lord. He's, he's not the king of kings. He's owes, he owes his homage. You can imagine what Paul did when he stood before him and when he appealed all the way to Caesar as a Roman citizen. You can imagine, I promise you, it's probably why, why Paul was killed. As he stood before Caesar himself and says, pay homage to the Lord. You are not the Son of God. Jesus Christ is. What? Yes, there's another king, and you're not it. You pay homage to the Lord Jesus Christ. You bow your knee and confess Him as Lord so that you be saved. Why? Because the king has laid his life down for you. This king has a law. He has a rule that oversees yours. And by the way, you're responsible to govern all of the Roman Empire according to his law. His rule. And that's what He expects out of you and no other. And you have no right to defy Him, by the way, King. Off with this dude's head, right? Crucify this man. Like, kill this guy. Can you imagine what, what that would have been like? In cases throughout Acts, you find examples where there's this upheaval. Gods are being refuted, right? Ephesus is a good example. Princess, you know, uh, Goddess Diana, right? Where there's this huge riot, right? And the men, men identify what, what Paul is doing. He's, they're saying he's flipping the whole world upside down. He's ruining everything, destroying the entire infrastructure. Why? They, they operate by a different law. They're not going by what Rome expects of them. They're not operating with the gods. They're not being obedient to like what, what's demanded of them. Like we were going to let them preach as long as they're quiet, but man, these guys are flipping everything upside down. They're ruining our economy and everything. Why? Because he came in and says, you have a king. Not because like you, you have an individual savior who will give you an opportunity to have sweet times in a prayer closet with your, you, your Jesus in a Bible. He said you have a king and has a law that you need to be obedient to. You worship these false gods? What does it say? Paul was provoked in his heart when he, when he went to uh, um, Athens. Provoked in his heart. Why? Because all these people was kind of minding their own business, doing whatever, you know, whatever they wanted. No, he was provoked in his heart by their pagan worship. How many gods there were. They even, to make sure everything was covered, they had one given to the unknown god. What did he do? Oh, well, I'll let them kind of figure it out themselves. You know, maybe I'll share about their private personal experience with Jesus, you know, and, and talk to them about how sweet it is that he died for their sins. Is that what Jesus did? Or, excuse me, Paul? No. Paul says, those are false gods. You're to worship the one and only true God. As a matter of fact, this God is the creator over everything. He created everything. To the extent He even pointed your time, place, and habitation. You have an original parent, Adam and Eve. He created them. Let me tell you, let me explain to him. I think this is just a summary of what he said. But he started with creation. He started that they have a creator. And he goes down the line. And then what does he say? You have a judge too. A judge? What have I done wrong? What does this man think he is that he could put his rule over the top of us, that I need to be obedient to his law. Uh, he is the king of kings. 
and he is the Lord of Lords. No, we have no king but Caesar. Not true. Jesus Christ is king. And then there's the, the clash. And how is he vindicated? Well, he rose again from the dead when he put to open shame all of the rulers, principalities, powers, forces of darkness to open shame. Right? That's the gospel. It's great news for those who bow the knee. Horrible news, terrifying news for those who don't. So you might ask, well, that's quite the introduction. Well, how does this have to do anything with what Paul's saying here in 1 Timothy? Some of you might be asking. I want you to note something. What does he say? There are people who desire to be teachers of the law in the previous context. That means that, that it's a good thing to be a teacher of the law. And not only does it mean to be a good thing to teach the law, not to get caught up in what? Um, vain discussions, uh, talking about myths and genealogies, but something that is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of blessed God and is, is not contrary to sound doctrine. You need to do, you, when you explain the law, when you understand what the law is, you understand its authority over you. Right? And when it talks about not being under the law, it means not under its condemnation. It doesn't mean that God no longer has authority over you somehow above it and no longer accountable to it. It means you're not under its condemnation. What used to drive Moses uh, and the Israelites to go th uh, go through the mediatorial sacrificial system is now driving us through Christ. But there is still a requirement and an obligation for you to live holy as God is holy. That obligation is for the Christian and for the unbeliever. News at 11, for every individual, for every family, for the church, and for society as a whole in the way it's governed. Somehow we have imagined that the political authorities and orders are exempt from the rule of Christ and we no longer need to appeal to them. As a part of the gospel message, we hear things like, just preach the gospel. Okay, what do you think? Is it narrowly limited to Jesus' life, his work, his ministry, the miracles, his death, burial, resurrection, and minus the ascension? Is that what it's limited to? Is it narrowly limited to the individual's experience in terms of redemption, in terms of their relationship with God? Or does it have further implications? It does. It has implications into the family, into the church, and into society as a whole, particularly a way it's governed. Let's go through this together. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There is a lawful use of the law. Paul wouldn't have had, to, he wouldn't even have shared that if he didn't think that the law had no application today, right? If there is a good use of the law, we need to better understand what the lawful use of the law is, right? Paul says in Romans 7.12, he says, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. If you do a word study on holy, righteous, and good as compared to God's character, you'll find that this is in a direct alignment with God's character. It is what God is. God is good, He's righteous, and He's holy. To use it lawfully means there's a valid use, a correct and proper application of it. And Paul, if you notice uh, in the earlier context, he's correcting a misuse of the law. And in fact, I would say he's arguing for a legitimate use. And when it says not for the just, notice here just as we move on, it's, it's understanding that the law is not laid down for the just, uh, but for the lawless and disobedient. Just assumes that there, again, there's some standard of understanding what just is, what righteous is, what goodness is. Where else do we learn that outside of the law? 
And when I say the law, I'm talking about the complete total instruction of the Lord. I'm talking about the law and the prophets. I'm talking about the complete reflection of who God is, what God is, His holy attributes. You can't understand what just is unless you knew what injustice was. The only thing that describes to us what injustice is, is the law, the complete instruction of God. We must know who God is. We must understand who we are. We must understand who we are and what that obligates us to do, to live like, how it, how it requires us to live by virtue of being God's image bearers. We have to understand that. Then we'll understand what just is. So it's not laid down for the just, meaning those who are acting in accordance with it, those who are walking in alignment with it. And we would even go as far as to say that's impossible to do apart from the empowered spirit of God at work in them. Uh, as the new covenant example would d- describe, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, is we must receive a new heart. We must be new creatures. God's law has to be written upon our hearts. And uh, in order for us to walk, we must be empowered by His Spirit to do so. So we're not saying this is outside of grace in some way. But we are saying it's still an obligation. We're saying it's an obligation. We have to be holy as God is holy. Um, I love this quote by Richard Barcelos. Um, in uh, his work, it was a, it was a journal uh, on the utility of the Decalogue uh, based on this text. He says, the law in this sense, quoting him, is the standard for proper conduct as defined by God for all mankind, Christian and non-Christian. This lawful use of the law points out sin, even in the Christian, defining sinful conduct as, quote, contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel. In other words, lawless living is antithetical to sound gospel doctrine. Just think about that. Lawless living, what, what, think about what John says in 1 John. What does he say? He said sin. This is an archaic word, right? To miss the mark. Sin is lawlessness. And Jesus Christ came, he says, to destroy lawlessness on the cross. Why would you continue to live in a pattern of lawlessness for the very thing that Christ came to destroy? So there must be some understanding that he has that is that, that assumes the new covenant fulfillment of law in Christ, which also assumes some ethical principle that we all must live by, which leads to and results in holy living. Right. In other words, lawless living is antithetical to sound gospel doctrine. If living like those listed in 1 Timothy 9-10 through 10 is sinful, which is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel, then living antithetically to those listed in is righteous and not contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel. This shows that the law is for the Christian to fulfill. And he quotes Romans 13, 8 and 10. And when he does so, he is living in conformity to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel. Hendrickson says, the sound doctrine demands that man must keep the law. The gospel does not replace the law. It upholds the law. That might be strange to some folks' ears today. That might even be hard for some folks to wrestle with. But you're going to really struggle to understand what it means to actually be a faithful Christian and what it means to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world unless you understand that the gospel has some continuity with the law. That the law acts pedagogically. That it's a teacher. Listen to what John Stott says. It is particularly noteworthy that the sins which contravene the law as the breaches of the Ten Commandments, are also contrary to sound doctrine of the gospel. So the moral standards of the gospel do not differ from the moral standards of the law. 
Hear that. The moral standards of the gospel don't differ from the moral standards of the law. We must therefore imagine that because we have embraced the gospel, we may now repudiate the law. We don't get to repudiate it because we're believers. Paul says that. Shall we continue in sin that grace shall abound? How does he respond? He answers it rhetorically. Certainly not. No. We don't get to just live in sin that grace would abound. We don't get to be lawless. We don't get to violate God's holy law. Because why? We're all of grace? No. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit of God with His law written upon your heart. It's a sign of the new covenant. You're to walk in it. You're to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. God has that requirement for all men. That is the foundation of the gospel. And unless you understand that, you'll never run to Christ. You will never fall at the feet of Jesus Christ and appreciate what He has done on the cross. You'll never do that. You're missing the gospel entirely. You cannot live in sin that grace would abound. It's totally contradictory to the Christian life. And the same would be true for the unbeliever. The unbeliever just goes, I reject God's Bible. I reject your God. I don't have to listen to Him. I don't care about that. And you go, that doesn't matter. You're a sinner. You have violated God's holy law. He is in command over you. He is your king. Bow the knee now or face Him later. You'll ultimately have to give an account for everything that you've done in secret and in person for every thought, for every idle word, and for every idle action. He will bring all things into account and you will be condemned before Him because you bear His image and He requires of that you, that of you. So let's understand the law a little bit clearer. I think Calvin has helpful uh, breakdown of this. I don't think it's um, entirely helpful, but I think it is helpful in some ways. The law, and he has a three-part distinction of the law. Jonathan brought that up a bit ago. Uh, the first is pedagogic, meaning it's the teacher. Okay. The second, it's political, meaning it has, it has help, helpful use for legislative um, purposes, particularly as a protector, protector of civil order and a restrainer of evil. Really, all that means is it's a practical expression of one's love of neighbor. So think about that. From a legislative sense, the law has the, should be doing two things. One, providing civil order and restraining evil. Civil order and restraining evil is just an expression of one's love for neighbor. Okay? The second table of the commandments. And then also a permanent pattern. The third part is a permanent pattern of one's life. It's a mirror. It acts as a mirror for us in Christ um, for the purposes of sanctification. It provides the normative value for Christian ethics. It's for our growth. It's held up to us as a mirror so that we can look at our lives and examine them and help examine one another lovingly right? and share with them where we've missed the mark, where we've sinned, where we've fallen short and press those to the upward calling in Christ. Appeal to the Spirit at work active in them, that their conscience would bear witness and they would turn and they would walk with God and love the Lord in all of His law. Loving God and loving their neighbor. So again, for the unjust then, so we, we have an understanding of the believer. Think pedagogically, politically, and permanent pattern of life. The unjust is the next person, right? So it's not laid down, Paul says, for the just. But for those lawless and disobedient. Again, John, to help, John uses the term sin and lawlessness interchangeably. This is what sin means. It means we are lawless people. What law, then begs the question, what law is being violated? God's holy law. His holy requirement that we are to love Him and love our neighbor. 
simply put and defined. Okay. And look how he describes them. He calls them lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinners, unholy and profane. We're going to stop there. That I believe, and in most commentators would agree, summarizes the first table of the law, doesn't it? It's an ethical sense. An ethical sense of, of what a person should be like, what a person should look like, um, either in the positive or the negative. This is a negative, right? They should not be lawless. They should not be disobedient. Lawless in what sense and disobedient to whom? They should not be ungodly. They should not be a sinner. They should not be unholy nor profane. The first table of law summarizes all of those things. The problem with people who are disobedient is they don't care about legal restrictions. Those who are unholy sinners and profane don't care about the sacred. They reject it and resist it with everything in them. They're unconvinced, as a matter of fact, as a commentator says, of their sinfulness. They are unconvinced that they are unholy, that they are profane, they are disobedient, they are ungodly, that they are a sinner. Because why? As Scripture points out throughout almost its entirety, they believe that it's perfectly acceptable to be a law to themselves. And so you're refuting that with the unbeliever. You're saying, you think it's okay to do what's right in your own eyes. You think it's okay to make up whatever law, regulation, organ, you know, uh, statute and command that you want based on your own personal feelings, your own desires. No, no, no. You need to worship the living God. Turn from your profaneness. Turn from your unholiness, your sinfulness, your disobedience, and your lawlessness. That's what you're called to do and point to them. As we read today in uh, Romans 3, it says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. As an ambassador to the Lord Jesus Christ, as this witness, this faithful witness, this euangelion who goes out to the world and, and, and proclaims the kingdom of God and says, you need to turn to Christ. You need to be obedient to Him. You need to live according to His holy command. God has a requirement of you. And what should happen is every mouth should be stopped and recognize that they have that accountability to God as a result of it. That's what preaching the gospel looks like. And there are some who think, eh, I don't care, man. I'm unconvinced of my sinfulness. I don't think that I'm profane. I don't think I'm ungodly. Matter of fact, I think I'm a very spiritual person. Our friend. Spiritual people. I think I'm actually doing great. I live a wonderful life. Matter of fact, I'm more ethical than most Christians. I'm more moral than most Christians are. Look how I love all my hundred cats. I'm saving animals. You know? Look look at all the wonderful things I'm doing with like the global like meltdown with all the the ecological and geological problems with uh, you know, the sciences behind uh, our globe warming up. I'm doing all these things to help our, our environment. I'm a hardcore environmentalist. Save the whales. I do sweet things. I fast a lot. Very spiritual person, right? No, you are profane. You are unholy. You are a sinner. You are ungodly. You reject God's law. You are a law to yourself. And you need to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and turn to Him that you would be saved. And if you don't, you're going to be judged. So then Paul goes on to say, if you notice here in, in our scripture reading, he says, uh, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. There is no boasting before the living God. 
And then he goes on, he's like, what kind of law are we talking about here? Is it a law of works? No, it's a law of faith. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Why? Because we could do nothing. Jeremiah says our works are but filthy rags before the living God. We could do nothing to earn any sort of favor with God. It is all of God, all of His work. But what the law brings to reality is that mirror as it's held up to us, that teacher, is we need Jesus. But you need the mirror. If you don't have the mirror, you'll never see the need for Jesus. Is He the God of Jews only? No, Gentiles too. He's the God of both because Gentiles were wrestling and struggling with this in Rome. How do we deal with these Gentiles who are not walking in accordance to the law as given by Moses? What is Paul saying? You're all guilty under the law. You can't boast in your circumcision. You can't boast in your heritage. You can't boast in the fact that you're a child, a seed of Abraham. And then he goes on to describe that in Galatians. That here's what it means to be a true seed of Abraham. Right? There's a seed of the seed of the bondwoman, the seed of the of Abraham, the seed of the, the free man. Right? This is what it means to be the true seed, that you have faith, that you believe in what God has accomplished on your behalf. That it is nothing about you. It can't be by works of the law. That's impossible. This should cause you to recognize and acknowledge and appreciate the work that Christ has done for you on the cross. And I love how he says we don't overthrow this law by faith. By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold it. We embrace it. We appreciate it. And we uphold it. For the Christian and for the non-Christian. For both. So think about it. The lawless are criminals. Rebellious, independent. They have no law, no regard for the, for the law at all. And you're pointing them to their rebellion. You're pointing them to their disobedience. You're pointing them to where um, they have missed the mark. You're pointing them to their sin. Ungodly are irreverent and impious. They find no place for God in their lives. Sinners are those who commit unrighteous acts towards God. The unholy lack the characteristics of moral and ritual purity, they're faithless, prayerless, and godless. The profane are characterized by violating the sacred character of something or someone else. It could be a place, it could be some object or an institution even. In another sense, it's desecration. To profane something is to desecrate it, to break it down. Examples in Scripture given are like the temple and the Sabbath. The profaning and the desecration of the temple and there's a profaning and the desecration of the Sabbath. It's a failure in the biblical sense to keep and preserve what is good. All of the first table of the Ten Commandments deal with that. Our relationship with God. What He requires of us as image bearers of God. All of those deal with the first. The second table are those who abuse their mothers and fathers. No, it just picks right up. right? It says... Those who strike their fathers and mothers, also for murderers, sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Okay, Let's talk about this briefly. So when we think about, on the one sense, you have a relationship with God vertically that, that has demands of you. These are things that we should be pointing to in the gospel. You, ha- you, you are an image bearer of God, and God has requirements over over you by virtue of bearing His image. The second table deal with our inner relationship with one another. Again, the Gospel speaks to all of these things. Does it not? Right? 
Those who kill their fathers and mothers or murderers violates the command, honor your mother and father and you shall not murder. Right? Sexually immoral, um, dealing particularly with homosexuality or sodomy, directly correlates, you shall not commit adultery. Now what's interesting is many people say, well, that's only in a marital relationship, a covenant relationship acknowledged by God. Right? But what's interesting is the passages in Leviticus deal with sexual morality in a much broader context. And Jesus himself takes it even further and says, if you even look at a person with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So what's interesting, and, and some commentators would say, these are all the most extreme expressions of each violation. Striking mothers and fathers is the ultimate expression, killing them, ultimate expression of dishonoring your parents. That could come in the form of just a um, disobedience. That can come in the form of uh, responding back in some dis- disrespectful way, seen as this words can be striking. Right, being lawless in your household as children, but the ultimate act of dishonoring is killing your parents, right? And that goes hand in hand with murder. We shall not shed the blood of another man, for our life will be required of us. Why? Because we bear God's image. Paul, uh, God says to to Noah. So this is the most extreme examples. Interesting enough, sexual immorality, homosexuality is the most extreme example, next to bestiality. The most extreme examples that you can find. You do this, you're worthy of death in God's eyes. These are the extreme examples. You want to go against that which is natural, how God has created you, how God has designed you. You are violating God's holy command and His order. You shall not commit adultery. Enslavers was really the ultimate expression of theft, if you think about it. Someone who, someone who enslaves, like kidnaps, man steals, takes someone else for their own personal use as a slave or then sells them off as property to someone else is the ultimate expression of theft. You're taking a person, their livelihood or their capacity of uh, uh, freedom, like just to be free before God and walk before God. Stealing uh, is one of, uh, uh, enslaving someone is one of the worst expressions of theft. And it deserved capital punishment in Exodus 21.16 and Deuteronomy 24.7. Violates the commandment, you shall not steal. Liars and perjurers. Again, perjury is like the ultimate form of lying if you think about it. It's bearing false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What happened to people in the law? For example, uh, they, they, they said, this person did this to me, right? They went before the courts uh, in the, under the Mosaic Covenant. They went before the courts and what would they say? This person did this to me. They stole something from me or, or whatever, right? What, what, would the, what would the law require if they were lying, perjuring the court? You guys know? They would have, that's exactly right, they would have to suffer the same consequence or more. The court could actually take it to the most severe of all penalties for that person. So, for example, if you lied about, let's say, this man raped me, you know, a woman lies about a man raping her, she would receive the death penalty if she was caught lying. Pretty severe. So perjury is bearing false witness in a court setting by swearing an oath before God, this is what happened, and then lying about it. It's like the ultimate expression of lying. Not just this little white lie. You're saying, I'm willing to suffer the risk 
right, of, of suffering under the punishment by swearing an oath before the court of my peers and before God that this is what happened and then suffer the consequence if I'm lying. You shall not lie. And notice, uh, notice how Paul concludes. He says, anything else, right? Is there anything else contrary to sound doctrine? They believe that the total summary, because it's hard to summarize covetousness in the most extreme way, um, but it does summarize it because typically, I mean, you could probably identify covetousness with everything that violates the first and second temple table. Let me explain briefly. If you are coveting your own will, your own desires, and you want to make up your own reality on your own, you want to be God. You desire to be God so bad, you desire to be the God of your destiny so bad that you would repudiate, reject, defile, profane, and be disobedient to the God of the Bible. We see it all the time, don't we, at Planned Parenthood? That's not my God. I don't believe in your Bible. Right? They scream at us. They hate us. They revile us. Because they hate God. So they want to be their God so bad. They covet this desire so bad they would rather reject God and be absurd. Act like, act like and behave like animals. Be their own gods. Their own gods of their own destiny. They covet something so bad, like their neighbor's wife, they commit adultery with them. They covet something so bad, they're willing to steal, perjure, right? Whatever else, you fill in the blank. They're willing to do whatever it takes, murder even, if that's the case. Look at David's example, um, wonderful example when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. What did he do? Well, let's kill Uriah. That'll solve it. Then they won't discover that, you know, first he tries to get him to go be with his wife, right? And takes him out of war, be with his wife, so that he doesn't get caught having gotten her pregnant. But then when he just refuses to do it, okay, put him in the heat of the battle, I'm going to kill this guy. So he murders him out of desire to have his wife. It's pretty evil. Covetousness in some way, shape, or form is directly linked to all the violations of the first and second table. So it's a fair to say, and anything else that's not uh, in relationship to sound doctrine. So what we want to do to conclude is we want to be in alignment with sound doctrine. And that sound doctrine should be in alignment with the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ laid his life down for all the violations, the most extreme of which, of all the first and second table of the commandments. That which has its weight over us if we are not in Christ. That which condemns us if we are not in Christ. That means, to be quite honest, there is hope for anyone, isn't there? There is hope for anyone. Anyone who has violated God's holy command, there is hope in Christ to the greatest extreme. I think Paul's. I think it's fair to say Paul would say the same based on what he's sharing here. So we want to be in agreement with the gospel, which is in agreement with sound doctrine, to live our course of life in such a way um, that not just narrowly focuses on who Christ was in terms of individually, that He lived a perfect life, He suffered on our behalf, His death, burial, resurrection, but we want to acknowledge His ascension to His Lordship, His kingship. We want to be faithful ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ in the broader sense, which refers to the entire body of Christ's teaching. That is what it looks like, in my humble opinion, to be one who is a teacher that can confidently hold the faith in a clear conscience. Who can defend the faith in a clear conscience. Who can instruct others well as Paul is instructing Timothy. Who can go out to be that faithful evangelist doing the work of ministry that we are all called to. 
That is what it looks like to be a faithful Christian who walks before the Lord. It looks a lot like dealing with individual sin. It looks a lot like dealing with familial sin. It looks like dealing with sin in the church. And it looks like dealing with sin in society as it relates to its legislation. Which is why we take a stand firmly against things like abortion. We can say with great confidence based on this understanding as we walk before our legislators here in the city and at the state level and say, we are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ and you have violated God's holy law. You allowing the murder and the slaughter of unborn children is unholy, unrighteous, and unjust. It's not good. You have an obligation and a responsibility before the living God to uphold order in society and to restrain evil and you are failing to do so. I appeal to Romans chapter 13. You have an obligation, legislator, 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 looking at them in the eye, to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and to confess Him as Lord and to walk faithfully with Him and to uphold righteousness in society today. And that is not happening. And somehow Christians are fighting against that with one another. I don't understand it. But I believe this is the foundation for that deliverance of the Gospel from the top down. Every national leader needs to know they need to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every national leader needs to know that they need to uphold His law and commands. Every national leader has the obligation before the living God to rightly divide His Word, being a worker, not ashamed. And guess who has the obligation to disciple those national leaders? According to the Great Commission, all of us. We need to disciple those leaders. We need to be a voice proclaiming. We need to be a voice that cries out, pleading with them to turn to the Lord by virtue of being ambassadors and messengers of the great news of our King. So with that said, let's bow our heads in prayer and commit this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank You that we have a great King who is seated on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, who right now is placing, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, all enemies under His feet. And that one day will be accomplished by conquering the ultimate enemy, death, which began on the cross. Death is conquered. Death has no power over us. You put our enemies, the wicked leaders, rulers, the destroyers of people, to open shame by the public expression of the cross. What, what is foolish in the world's eyes is your very wisdom and how you're using to draw men to yourself. But we realize that no principality, no force of darkness, no ruler of this day and age has the capability of standing in opposition to your word that they will ultimately brought to frustration and foolishness and absurdity. They, re- they will recognize the end of their ways when ultimately they have to bow the knee before you. Despite the unpopularity of this message, Lord, we are obligated to proclaim it as fragrance of Christ, those in some cases leading to life and in some to death. Despite the popularity, Lord, of having to deal with things like sexuality, particularly with homosexuality and transgenderism and the rest of the LGBTQ alphabet soup. We have the obligation to stand before them and proclaim your holy law and what what is required of them. They're not allowed to just disobey it. They're not allowed to legislate wickedness and encourage the celebration of such under your holy rule. They will be accountable ultimately before you. We ought to stand firmly on behalf of the unborn. And I can think of so many other things, Lord, that could be brought up today, but these are the issues of our time. And Lord, I pray that we as a people would be a prophetic voice in our society. 
I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.